Okay, hello everybody. Um, you're in the session for Circular Regenerative Economies. I'm Hayden, I'm chairing this session. We've got three speakers uh, for you today. The first speaker is, without further ado, is Sharon Eady from the Post Growth Institute on the Real Circular Economy. Thanks, Hayden. Thanks Thank everyone for choosing to be here today. Um, so, linear thinking has long been part of Western thinking, especially since the Industrial Revolution. So time flows from past to present to future. Life conditions and opportunities will always increase for subsequent generations. And our materials use flows from a take-make-waste fashion in a linear sense as well. But linear thinking has permeated our mindset such that we anticipate progress defined in a certain way as being on a constant upward trajectory. And that makes it quite difficult for us to identify when we've arrived at a time like this. So a plethora of research is showing we're in an era of climate instability, species loss, uh, increasing extremes of inequality, all of which are both being caused by and causing ecological overshoot, that is using more of nature's regenerative capacity than it can uh, regenerate uh, quickly enough. So some call this time in history the Anthropocene, that is the geological era in which humanity has become the dominant influence on climate and the environment. I like to call it humanity's wily coyote moment. So if we are concerned about resource consumption and associated carbon emissions, then materials and how we use them should be a focus. And the intent of the circular economy is to bend this take-make-waste trajectory of the materials economy into a circular shape. And it's necessary, but it's insufficient. The circular economy has been enthusiastically adopted by governments and business because it allows them to focus mostly on the politically safe stuff and green technology and business models that work with the existing economic modus operandi and less on the potentially messy things like people, culture, values and the transition to a new economic operating system. So the circular economy doesn't address the wider context of values and systems in which it operates, such as an economic system that depends on perpetual growth. So the way the dominant economic system works requires constant growth and it needs things to wear out, break down and become unfashionable in order to perpetuate itself. How can a company that must continually provide its returns to shareholders grow? How can it continue to have that economic growth if its market is satisfied with things that last a long time? Extraction is in the very DNA of this system. And as peer-to-peer -peer researcher and theorist Michelle Bowers likes to say, likes to say Planned obsolescence is not a bug of capitalism, it's a feature. That image there, if you can't tell what that is, is a whole batch of um, mobile phones that have been discarded. So planned or perceived obsolescence is not the only driver of extractive growth. A well-known global furniture company, you can probably guess who they are, they've made significant achievements in more efficient and environmentally responsible use of materials, dematerialisation, all sorts of things, and they deserve a lot of credit for doing those really important things. However, the company is due to double in size by 2020. They sell 100 million pieces of furniture every year and are estimated to be the, the world's third largest user of wood. So they have a target that by this year, their uh, use of wood will increase from 17% to 50% of wood that's either recycled, recovered or coming from responsibly managed forests. But the question is, what would the impact be of the 50% of uncertified wood, especially as the company doubles in size? Can we have green growth or somehow decouple material consumption from growth? In 2011, the CEO of Veolia, which is one of the biggest waste companies in the world, commissioned a study 
to assess the business opportunities of the circular economy and recycling. And they found the ability to decouple is only possible if the total annual raw material consumption growth rate is under 1%. And that also requires a higher level of recycling of 60 to 80%. So it's one thing to work towards the circular economy, but is it enough if that circle has to keep growing to feed our extractive economic systems when our planet is not growing? It's hard to see how we can make an extractive linear materials economy into a circle without extracting our extract, um, addressing the extractive linear financial economy. Just to give you a few stats here, um, in the 30 years between 1980 and 2010, our materials extraction went up by 94% to now 70 billion tonnes per annum. Global shipping traffic and air miles uh, are projected to double by 2040, and that's to scale, that's literally physically twice the size. The interesting thing here is that shipping and, and air aviation are not included in the Paris Agreement because there's no way to agree on how those emissions should be allocated. And yet, both of those sectors, I think, are about 3% of global emissions, and together they're as big as Britain and Germany combined, and they're not uh, in, the, in the accounts. So we're also projected to have a threefold increase in solid waste by 2100. Why do we need all this growth? It's because of our extractive economy. Wealth is increasingly captured, sucked out of the real or common economy and into the economy of goods and services, that is, and into this sort of more what you call elite economy of business equity, shares, securities, money markets and hedge funds. There's also an estimated $32 trillion stashed in offshore tax havens. One study showed that only 15% of all the money flowing through financial institutions today ends up in business. The rest is staying within that closed circle of the financialised economy. And so this idea of um, the value extraction coming out of that green circle, um, coming into that economy, but it's not coming that fast enough or big enough in terms of the kinds of things that come out of there, like wages, welfare, subsidies, scholarships, all these kinds of flows back are a lot smaller than what's coming out. So it's sort of, we know trickle down doesn't work, but we are now seeing that the extracting up is in fact working very well. So for many reasons, including corporate tax avoidance, uh, the wealth siphon to tax and redistribute is simply not enough. We need the business models that keep wealth in the real economy and keep it circulating. And we can't talk about that unless we talk about ownership. Just to give you a sense of how strange things have gotten, in 2012, the New York Stock Exchange, which is the largest trading platform by market capitalisation by a long way, was purchased by a derivative of itself for $8 billion. So we now have abstra abstractions. <laughs> you know, it's gotten quite weird. So there's this kind of really disembodied economy that's influencing a huge amount of stuff that's happening in the real economy. I did note that the date was December 21st, 2012, which I thought was quite funny as well, and a bit mm -hmm. of a, a comical coincidence. So one of the things that my colleagues and I at the Post Growth Institute have been working on, I've not been co-authoring this book, but we've been working up this idea for a while now, is what if business that put uh, purpose ahead of profit increasingly outperform those that don't? So this isn't because they're more noble, because it's a better idea, because we like it, but what if they outperform? What if it's the core of the global economy by 2050? We see increasingly traditional non-profits that depend on charity or government money. They don't like being dependent on that. In some cases it's drying up. They're starting to shift into enterprise. And it can be not-for-profit enterprise. So this model is about preventing value extraction and keeping it invested and circulating in that real economy. It promises value creation, not value extraction and a system that runs on shared interest, not self-interest. So this is one of the graphs that we're using to kind of talk to people about ownership. 
on the left you have a traditional corporation, shareholders, you know, you want the return on investment to shareholders, that's what's driving extraction. Sort of further up that spectrum, you've got privately owned small business, a worker-owned co-op where profits are still distributed privately. Not-for-profit business is about a legal model. So you've got, you know, B corporations, that's a certification scheme. What legally prevents the private distribution of profit, but that's, it's actually surplus and the surplus is reinvested back into the mission of that business. So it works just like any other business. Um, everyone gets paid, it can make money, it must be financially sustainable and it can make as much profit or surplus as it likes, but that needs to be reinvested back into the, the mission. So that's sort of plugging those economic leaks out of a local economy. And I'll just read you a quote here from my colleagues, Donnie McClurkin and Jennifer Hinton, who are co-authoring this book that's just for release hopefully very soon. Profit is neither inherently good nor bad, but as a surplus of economic activity, it is important. And what happens to the surplus in our economy is at the root of whether we have a healthy economy or a destructive economy. An economy based on not-for-profit enterprise would take us beyond the current debate about whether the market should be more heavily regulated or if it should be allowed to operate more freely because the functioning of a not-for-profit market economy would be so different from the for-profit market economy. So there's other ways of actually having markets. So in the grief cycle, which you might be familiar with, denial is followed by bargaining. Like green growth, I think sometimes a circular economy is an expression of the bargaining stage of the end of growth grief cycle. It seems we'll do anything that we can to, to not have to face that we cannot sustain 9 billion plus people on a Western industrial model of development when the earth is already in overshoot. So any approach that's aligned with or dependent on an economic system based on perpetual growth in the pursuit of more, or one where value is created by many but captured by a few, doesn't really offer the structural change to deliver what we need to address our environmental and social challenges. So if we're truly seeking to create a circular world, let's start by adopting a wider vision of what a circular economy is and ways of manifesting that vision. Otherwise, we may find our circle has in fact become more of a cul-de-sac. So we've gone down the wrong way and we need to, um, to do something different. So I'll just finish up by leaving you with that slide. That's something I've initiated um, through my work to look at how we can relocalise production in cities. A lot of this stuff's already happening around food, energy and fabrication. It's based on an idea out of Barcelona called Fab City, which is looking to leverage the international network of fab labs and maker spaces to relocalise making in a city. If you're not making things locally, you don't have a circular economy. So we need to look at all these things as well. And one of the things I'm particularly interested in is what policies have been enacted that's helped to support this kind of activity. All the people out there that are doing permaculture, out there doing local energy, how can government, how can government have a role as a partner state in helping all these things to happen? So I'm collecting examples here to share with other people. Um, and if you are aware of anything that's been done in your city by your government, please let me know and I'll add it to this, this policy bank um, and see if we can try and get a greater understanding and, and narrative around this kind of thing that we need, not only the, the circular materials economy, but also the business models that help address that extraction in a broader sense. Thank you.